What's up? It's Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports. Thanks for listening to the Under the Hood podcast presented by Coors Light. Stay inside and buy your Coors Light online. Find out how at get.coorslight.com. Coors Light, take time to chill. You're listening to Under the Hood. Get the ESPN Chicago app for podcasts and the live stream from anywhere, anywhere, anywhere. Download in the app store today. This is ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports. The NHL is back. It's right around the corner. and We're talking about it right here on Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the brand new ESPN Chicago app. Greg Wyshynski covers the NHL for ESPN.com, and Greg joins us here on ESPN 1000. Greg, Jonathan Hood, thanks so much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Uh, a 2014 format, better than 16, better than 20? <laughs> uh, worse than 22, not as bad as 31. Uh, no, I, I think 22 teams would have been the sweet spot. That kind of would take care of all of the playoff teams around the bubble uh, that got their seasons cut short when the NHL paused for the pandemic on March 12, 24. It ropes in the Blackhawks. We can be happy about that, obviously, mm-hmm. here on this program. Uh, and it ropes in Montreal. Two big markets. And, you know, listen, I, I don't necessarily think both of those teams were, you know, going to be playoff teams. But if you're going to do a big 2014 tournament in the middle of the summer and try to get people to watch hockey, I mean, invite as many people to the party as you can. And honestly, with what they were given to work with, with what, with what was in front of them, uh, I think they came up with a pretty good format, not only for the return to play in that tournament, but also for the draft lottery as well. Uh, how the 2020 NHL playoffs can be the greatest ever. you got to check out this column on ESPN.com. Greg wrote it, and you can read it while we are having our conversation. 77% of the league is in the postseason. Isn't that the case already? No, actually not. It's just – it's uh, – <laughs> It, it, it's interesting because when I read your column, I got really excited again for the NHL starting because there's so many different um, ways. It, it feels like this could be once it starts, Greg, it feels like the first day of the NCAA tournament because it seems like the unexpected can happen. Oh, yeah, and it's going to feel like the first day of March Madness, too, because the games are going to start at noon. You're going to get hockey all day long. Uh, one of the reasons that the NHL is, is doing this, obviously, is because of the same reason we watch March Madness, which is that they're hoping that the gambling community latches on to these games as, a, as something to, to bet on as, as live sports uh, slowly starts to return. Um, so it is going to feel like March Madness. It's going to feel like a day-long event, and I think that's a really cool way to do it. Um, and like you said, the unpredictability of the whole thing is really what makes it such an attractive uh, way to restart the season. Um, you don't know what these teams are going to look like. A lot of the teams that were banged up and injured at the end of this of the regular season, they're going to be healthy. Um, there's a lot of unpredictability on top of the fact that structurally with a, a five-game uh, qualification round series situation for the lower eight seeds uh, in each conference, I mean, a five-game series means three good games from a hot goalie and you might be looking at a slew of upsets in that round. Greg, uh, when we take a look at the NHL uh, before the pandemic and how, as we take a look at this f- format that's been laid out, don't you think that Gary Bettman and the NHL overall really needed a win, kind of a shot in the arm? Because out of everything that we see across the sports landscape, the NHL seems to be pretty direct and pretty uh, locked in on what they want to do, while others are still trying to figure things out. Yeah, and it's funny. I've been I've been doing a lot of interviews with different people in the last few days 
a lot of folks that don't necessarily follow the NHL on a, a day-by-day basis. And the overriding uh, feeling I've been getting from people is shock that Gary Bettman pulled this off. I mean, he, he's the guy that typically cancels the season, right? He doesn't bring yeah. the season back. So I think there was a surprise that the NHL had their act together the way it did. But, you know, in someone who's been following this process for ESPN.com for the last few months, uh, I could tell you that it's been a lot of back and forth between the owners and the players, a lot of different formats, trying to put everything on the table, trying to think outside the box as much as they can. And I'll give the NHL credit for this. They were flexible. You know, there was one point when they really wanted to do the draft before the season restarted. Their general managers weren't down with it, so the NHL relented, even though they were very much prepared to try to force that thing through. And in the case of of the players, you know, a lot of the players were like, look, you know, you have to come up with a format that's going to rope in all of the teams that were in the playoff race and give the teams at the top of the conferences competitive games to get them ready for the next round. And I think the NHL worked hard to hammer out a format that works. So, yeah, being first to market was huge for them. They owned the week. The NHL never owns the week. Last time the NHL probably got this much attention is when they put a team in Vegas. And, and that's, you know, the level of interest that we've had in hockey this week. That's really the case. You're right, Greg. As we talked to Greg Wyshynski from ESPN.com on the NHL, it's going to be returning soon. We're talking about it right here on Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000. I, um, you know, with the Winter Classic, with those those stadium series and the playoffs and opening night, you need to have something. I think that those are wins for the NHL. But this is this is something positive because Gary comes across as the baby face saying, "Here is the here's the layout. Here's where where we're going." Uh, so again, that that's good. Now c- compare the NHL to say the other commissioners. The NBA are, are on the precipice of trying to figure things out, getting closer. Major League Baseball, it's like it's so far away. The owners and players. So I, I guess Bettman would be right there at the top, along with Goodell, right? Yeah, as far as getting their act in order, for sure. sure. Um, but yeah, but the other thing about this too, and we got to we got to at least give some some <laughs> some time on this aspect of it is they came back because they had a format for the season, right? They didn't come back to say there was going to be a season. And, you know, the, the, the comparison I've been drawing is like when you're, when you're looking at, the, the, uh, you know, the, your kid's room after they cleaned it, right? And, and the floor is beautiful and all the toys are put away. And then over in the corner is that pile of dirty laundry, you know, that they haven't really done anything with. Sure. The pile of dirty laundry here is the testing it's where we're playing games. It's the protocols the players need. It's figuring out if they're going to see their families for two and a half months. I give the NHL credit. They got the message out. Uh, they, they put the format out. They got people really excited about hockey coming back this summer potentially. But there's so much work left to be done. And the message from the players this week has been, look, we're excited too. We want to come back and finish the season. But we didn't vote on whether or not to come back and play this summer. We voted on what it will look like if we do. Uh, what is the the latest on the financial ramifications for the players? You know that's a bone of contention with the players in the uh, in Major League Baseball. A- any issues financially? Well, we should say first the players have received all of their paychecks for the season. Um, they get paid uh, through the end of the regular season. They don't get a paycheck during the playoffs. What they've been trying to figure out is what to do with that last paycheck. Now, the way the NHL works is there's a fifty fifty revenue split between the players and the owners. If the owners don't make the money that they project to make and it's an even split, the payer, the players actually give back money to the owners to make it 50-50. Obviously, the owners are taking a massive revenue hit this season. The players know they're going to have to kick back money. So they've been trying to figure out if they're going to put 
that last paycheck into escrow and give it to the owners to help pay off that debt a little bit, or, or whether they're going to keep it and figure it out when revenues start coming in next season. Now, the bigger picture here is that we're a couple of years away from a new collective bargaining agreement between the players and the owners that needs to be ratified. And one of the underlying topics of the next few weeks is going to be the players and the owners talking a little bit about the CBA and trying to maybe come up with a way where the players will extend the CBA, which the owners are pretty happy about the current system, extend the CBA in exchange for paying off the giant revenue shortfall they're going to have this season and probably next season over the course of several years rather than taking a massive hit over the course of maybe one or two seasons. So the the financial picture is definitely part of the overall equation. It's something we're going to hear a lot more about, I think, as we get closer to the restart of the season. So do you want to go halves on uh, Ed Belfour's 1971 Plymouth uh, Barracuda <laughs> that he's selling for $1.2 million? Let's do it, you and I. Let's do it. Come on, Greg. I just, I, just, I, just, I just would love to be Ed Belfour's accountant. I mean, like, he offered the cops that one time a billion dollars. He's selling his car for, like, $1.2 million. The, the, the valuation of things in Ed Belfour's life has been fascinating for me over the last, like, 20 years. <laughs> There's no – listen – I love muscle cars, just like the next dummy, right? I love muscle cars. I, I enjoy it. But, man, that's a 71 Plymouth Cuda. That's a 440. I'm looking at the picture right now. It's a link in your uh, in your column. Uh, it looks great. It's, it's blue. It's light blue in color. It's got um, a leather interior. There's no way that thing's worth 1.2. I watch the auction shows. Man, I don't <laughs> think that's worth 1.2. But maybe it at Belfour's home, maybe it is. Well, there was there was an episode of Seinfeld once where I think Kramer bought a car that used to be owned by John Voight, and that helped like increase the value of the car. Maybe it's the same thing. Maybe it's like, you know, you you add on a, a mill if it's like Ed Belfort's car or something. You know, trying to rope in a, a Dallas Stars or a Blackhawks fan to spend that extra cheese to get the car. Dude, don't don't put it past a Hawks fan for real. I mean, that, like <laughs> getting the Eagles Cuda. Are you kidding me? Like that. I mean, before the championship era, like that guy walked on water. Like that, people loved Ed Belfour. So that's 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 amazing. Um, uh, by the way, I would agree with you, and I think that this should be part of the negotiations in the NHL. Uh, if all elite wrestling can get their wrestlers to be at uh, ringside. <laughs> You know, for for their events to try to have some kind of noise, it should be an edict in the in the conversation that the hockey players should stay. They should be in the stands for wherever they're going to play. They should be there to make some noise for their you know for their comrades that are playing. It'd be incredible. AEW has really cracked the code on that sort of empty arena thing in a way that I think that their competitors haven't. And just having you know the the faces cheer the heroes and the heels boo them and. And, and vice versa. And, yeah, the idea of, of, you know, there being somebody in the stands making noise during these games, I think, is something the NHL is certainly exploring. It could be staff members and, and players that are reserved for the teams that are playing. But, yeah, in a perfect world, man, how cool would it be to have the Philadelphia Flyers sitting in the stands watching the Penguins play? And, you know, taking, you know, trolling Sidney Crosby when he has the puck. I mean, there there's a billion ways that you could keep this thing a lot more interesting than just playing in front of empty seats. But I'll say this. There's a guy named Steve Mayer for the NHL. He's the uh, chief content creator for them. He's the guy who does all of the aesthetics for the outdoor games and, and themes them. You know, like when you go to the, the Winter Classic in Dallas and there's a big cowboy boot and stuff like that. So he's going to be the guy in charge of creating the atmosphere for these games. And I have a feeling that there's going to be some 
some stuff we've never seen for the NHL on television in the way that these games are shot and the way they're presented and in the way these arenas are going to end up looking and sounding to kind of distract us from the fact that there's no fans in the building. Oh, great. So we're going to get the red streak on the puck again like Fox. Is that what we're doing? <laughs> <laughs> well, at the, at the very least, maybe they can put them CGI robots in the stands so we have some, uh, some, some, some folks that are in the stands at least. I would like that. I would like to. I would like for the NHL just to be just like all elite wrestling. Just get all the fans, all the players. Even they're not playing. That's fine. But I want them there to be able to make a lot of noise, hitting the glass. That may be great. So it'd be awesome. So Greg, you know what's happening with this Hawks team. This is a, a team in transition here under Colleton. Colleton has been very unpopular here because it's it's what you know, right? It's when Quinville is let go, and I thought it was premature, but there was a disconnect clearly between the front office and Quinville, and that's why Q's not here anymore. Um, it's the winningest team in Chicago in quite some time when you have three Stanley Cups in that run, in that uh, the run the Blackhawks had. So Colleton's in here is kind of this kind of, I think, transitional coach, but yet you still have veterans. So I'm looking at the potential matchup against the Oilers. I don't expect a lot for the Hawks, but you see you see what's going on with this Hawks team. Do you keep the core of Crawford and Taves and Kane and Duncan Keith, or do you start over? Well, I mean, logic would dictate you start over. Um, I think part of the difficulty in that, obviously, is the trade protection some of these guys have. We've seen that with Seabrook. Um, and then, of course, you know, the, the fact that you are dealing with a, a major business decision in the sense that it has been this group that's enchanted so many fans in Chicago. It has been this group that bought so many people back to the organization after, you know, basically kind of walking away from it for decades. And it's really hard to conceive a, a Blackhawks team that doesn't have Keith and Taves and Kane at its core. Um, you know, there is a pass back, and that is, you know, as, as you develop more young players, and the Blackhawks certainly have a, a good number of them right now, you hope that maybe things coalesce and you could make a run. Heck, it could even be in the unpredictable summer we're about to have mm-hmm. uh, where they'll be playing an Oilers team that isn't necessarily a juggernaut, um, even though they were fifth in the conference. Um, but I, th- I think, you know, logically you'd want to start a rebuild, but, I mean, practically – it's hard to imagine that this core isn't going to still be here for the next few years or until they decide it's not time to be there anymore. And then you just try to fill in around them, uh, which has been the challenge, obviously, for Stan Bowman through the years. There was a time when the supporting cast could change over and they could win a cup. Uh, and then there are times when the supporting cast simply uh, just hasn't been able to coalesce around the core. Well, I, I just uh, I'm hoping that the Hawks come up with something because I can't go back to four thousand people at the United Center and trying to get English <laughs> words out of John Eves Larue. I, I can't go back to those days of, you know, the the lean days of Mike Smith and you know, I just I, I can't we can't do the old Alpo Suhonen thing again. It, it was it was really dark days, you know. All the pomp and circumstances around the United Center sold out now, but boy, back then, Greg. It was, it was oh, yeah. pretty. It was bleak. Yeah, I didn't. The, the HL team, the the Wolves, were a much hotter product than the Hawks during that time, and so I I can't see the Hawks going backwards. Hopefully, they can find some kind of middle way that they can stay relevant in in the city. Yeah, and obviously, you know, part of the trick with the Hawks now this season is the fact that you know they were last place in their division. They're kind of looking towards the draft, the whole thing, and. Then all of a sudden, now they're a playoff team, basically being in the qualification round. And for those who don't know, the NHL has kind of reconfigured its draft lottery where they're going to do one of them, right? And then they're going to pick the top three picks. But part of that lottery 
which will be held before the playoffs, is going to have a bunch of placeholder teams, right? So uh, it could be a situation where a team that is still active and playing then has a chance to get one of the top three picks when they do a second lottery uh, after the qualification round. So in theory, the Blackhawks are looking towards the draft, right? I mean, they're in the playoffs kind of thing, but they're also looking towards the draft. So just because they're in that field of 24 doesn't necessarily mean they can't still uh, pull a, a, good, a top player out of those top three picks if they end up uh, uh, having the lottery balls bounce the right way. Because they do obviously need some good, young, cheap, awesome labor uh, to, uh, to help fill out that team that certainly has uh, a number of veteran players uh, chewing up cap space. All right, Greg, are we looking for that check for the uh, other half of that CUDA? And we could, uh, we could just, I, I could have it a couple of weekends. You could have it a couple of weekends. And I think we'll be the cooler for it. I think it'll be great. <laughs> Absolutely, man. I mean, yeah, I mean, uh, every other weekend kind of situation. And then, you know, both, both of us could be kings of Chicago because we have Eddie the Eagles car. That's right. Exactly right. Greg, I'm glad you spent some time, man, in Chicago. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Anytime. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. This is uh, Greg Wyshynski from ESPN.com on Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood. This is Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports. It's Under the Hood. Follow us on the ground at IGJHood and at ESPN underscore Chicago. This is Chicago's home for sports. ESPN 1000. You know, as we do the show... Davis and I can't help but to look up at the monitor in the studio and see what is going on in cities like Charlotte and Dallas and Phoenix and New York City and Atlanta and, of course, in the twin cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul, protest over the death of George Floyd. And I've been reading all day on social media, many giving their thoughts on George Floyd, Pat Fitzgerald, for instance, the head coach for Northwestern, said silence at a time like this is unacceptable and complicit, especially from those who are privileged. Racism cannot be ignored. We can be better. We must be better. We all have a responsibility if we're going to fight systems of oppression. Listen, love, respect, and act. Some good words there from Coach Fitzgerald and many others across the country and around the world have given their thoughts about what is happening with George Floyd. George Floyd is a microcosm of an issue that has been going on for generations. This is not a 2020 issue. This is not part of the 2020 issues that we have in our world. It's been going on for a long, long time. And no one should be surprised at the response, not just in the Twin Cities, but across this country for those that are um, going up and down highways, going up and down streets, voicing their displeasure over a black man being manhandled and eventually killed by police. The vicious assassination of another black man at the hands of the police is awful, it's repetitive, and personally, I'm tired of it. I'll speak for me. I'm tired of it. This is not a new story, because you know that this has happened in our city. You know this has happened in cities across this country. The difference in 10 years or 20 years ago versus now is that 
there are video and there's plenty of tape to be able to see these actions occur. It was shocking during the Rodney King era where the, there, of course there was big rides in Los Angeles over it. As you well know, there's been documentaries and movies made about it, but just the difference in Rodney King's beating is that we all saw it because it was on videotape and we all saw it on our TVs. We can read about it and say, wow, police got into a skirmish with a citizen and they beat a guy almost half to death. When you read about it, it's, it really reads horrible. But when you see it, that tells the story. The videos that we are seeing tell the story. I'm watching people across this country riot and nobody should die at the hands of the police. People are saying, hey, what about justice for George Floyd? What about justice for anybody that doesn't want to die at the hands of the police in that fashion? What about justice for any of those people? And, and I will say again that it is very important for those boys in blue, those men in blue, those women in blue, those that are in the police force to speak against this. It's one thing for me and you to know that George Floyd's death was wrong. I need to your to the back of your neck. The guy says, I can't breathe. And the four officers, including the one that applied the pressure, couldn't care less about his life because there is no real feeling for a human life anymore from some people. I don't care. I have a gun. I'll shoot you. I'll put a needle behind your neck just because I've got the power over you. I'll kill you. Point is, though, is that me saying something may move a meter, may not. You being able to say something on social media, maybe that does something. But until police are saying things and saying that this is not who we are, this is not what this group of officers do, this is not what this city does, until you hear that, then I don't see how this is going to stop anytime soon. It, it, it's one thing for white people and Latino people and black people and everyone else to come together and talk about George Floyd and feel bad about this. But after this, then what happens after everyone goes home from the protest? Then what happens until the police and, and not talking about sh the shirts and ties and politicians push? I don't I couldn't care less what side of the aisle you're on in this, because this is not a political issue. It's about human decency. And if you can't see anything besides that and say, oh, well, it's, it's political. If you see it as political, this conversation is not for you. What this is about is the social injustice that's happening to black people at the hands of the police. Yes, it is true. All police are not bad people. There are bad people in all walks of life. However, because you are someone that has authority... Because you are there to serve and protect, others that do serve and protect have to be able to call these things out and say, this is not who we are. If you're fine with this, then you don't, you and I don't have a conversation. Once again, when it comes to either COVID-19, when it comes to, uh, to things that happen in other communities, if it's not happening in your circle, some people couldn't care less because people are selfish. People don't care. Some people just don't care. But the point is, is that 
if you are a police officer and you know that that was wrong, then you should be able to speak out on it without repercussions. You should not be able to, so someone should not look at you with uh, a turn of a uh, head and say, why are you speaking out against this officer? He's part of our brotherhood. She's part of our sisterhood. I don't care. Because that's when you're putting a spotlight on this issue. It's one thing for me to say. It's one thing for you to tweet about it and say, gosh, that's a shame that's happening in Minneapolis. That's a shame that's happening across this country where people are saying this is wrong. Of course it's wrong. Of course it's wrong. But more so than the suits and ties up in Ivory Towers and those people that are politicians, the focus should be on you as a police officer. You, someone who is proud to wear that badge, you have to say something. Yeah, it's about the fraternity. Yeah, it's about the brotherhood and the sisterhood. I I couldn't care less. It starts by saying, you know what? This is not who I am. That person's wrong. And you never get that. You never get that enough. You get that from like a, a retired person that's on Fox, CNN, MSNBC. You get that from a retired uh, comrade that used to be you know, on the front lines. You get that, but you don't get that from someone that's currently in a position. Why? Politics. Can't do that. Can't cross the line. Why not? Steven Jackson, former NBA player, um, had his own press conference earlier today. He spoke at a rally for... The death of George Floyd. This is some of the things that Stephen said. I'm here because they're not going to demean the character of Greg or George Floyd, my twin. Mm -hmm. A lot of times when police do things that they know that's wrong, the first thing they try to do is cover it up and bring up your background Mm -hmm. to make it seem like the that they did that they did was worthy. When was murder ever worthy? But if it's a black man, mm-hmm. it's approved. Mm-hmm. You can't tell me when that man had his knee on my brother's neck, taking his life away mm-hmm. with his hand in his pocket, that that smirk on his face didn't say I'm protected. Killing someone is never right. It happens in our city all the time. We quoted the numbers a few days ago about Memorial Day. Like, I got a gun, so I'm just going to kill you just because. And just raise the numbers and just keep it moving because I killed you because I have a handgun. I have the ability to do that. That's wrong. That's wrong from us as citizens killing each other just because we can. But then you take it to another level when I have to trust you with my life as you as an officer. And... I can't trust you because I don't know if I'm going to live or die. I'm black. I can say that. The difference between a white person and a black person is a white person gets pulled over by the police. There's this fear that you're going to get a ticket or something's going to be found in your record. If I get pulled over, I could die. And that should not be the case at all. This is not a, the, the situation of, of a few bad apples here, a few bad apples there. That's not because it's not a few bad apples because this is happening all the time to black people in this country. It's happening all the time. We know the issue. Now, how will it be solved? This is not the forum to figure out how that's going to be solved. But all I know is this, is that as I watch this coverage, as I do this show, uh, I'm just so 
saddened by us having to see this on our social media, in our world, all the time. All the time. And this is not for my generation. It's my grandfather's generation. It's my father's generation. It's been going on for a long time. And people wonder about these protests. Why are people protesting? Why are people destroying property? Because they're tired. There's some that are just rabble rousers that's just trying to get into the mix and feel that they can take their frustrations out on local area businesses. But then there are those that are protesting peacefully that are tired of this because it's the systemic issue that families have dealt with for a long, long time. Andre Snellings is next. This is Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports. It's Under the Hood. Follow us on the gram at IGJHood and at ESPN underscore Chicago. This is Chicago's home for sports, ESPN 1000. What do you got there? This is your car. My car? I said a 10-second car, not a 10-minute car. Pop the hood. Pop the hood? Pop the hood. Tales from the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN app. Here we go. Tales from the Hood right here on ESPN 1000, the brand new ESPN Chicago app. Jonathan Hood with you. Uh, If you're around Saturday, I will be with Jeff Dickerson. We'll be together between... 3 and 7 p.m. tomorrow. So 3 to 7, we'll be on on ESPN 1000 talking uh, sports from around the country and around the world. Interesting stories that we'll get to uh, 3 to 7 tomorrow right here on ESPN 1000. Well, Tales from the Hood, stories of sports, entertainment, everything else in between. So Sean Davis, the executive producer of our show, and I have decided um, that we're going to do some redrafts when it comes to the NBA. And a lot of them always have a Bulls angle to it because the Bulls and their rebuild trying to get to their first championship had a number of picks that were in the top 10. Um, This draft tonight that we'll do, this redraft will go to 1990. Uh, So 1990 draft. This draft had Gary Payton, Kendall Gill, Dennis Scott, D. Brown. uh, Not that D. Brown, but D. Brown. um, uh, Willie Burton, Bimbo Coles, it had Dennis Scott, Cedric Sabalos, it had um, Bo Kimball was in this draft. So there's some, some names here. And so what we do is, uh, looking at what we know now versus back in 1990, we redraft the 1990 draft. Now, the first pick was Derek Coleman in the 1990 draft. So we're going to redraft the top 10. Um, Sean, as I look at this, if I'm not mistaken, the Bulls, the Bulls did not have. They had the one pick in the pick, second right? round. Yeah. Okay, so they didn't have a, a first round pick. No. All right, but we can still look at the top ten because it was an interesting year in 1990. A lot of quality players that we would see throughout the 90s and beyond. So, my first pick in the draft to redraft 1990, I'm going with Oregon State's Gary Payton. I believe the glove was the best player in this draft and proved himself as a, as a strong player, 17 year, years in the league, 16 points a game, and one of the best defensive guards ever. I'm right in step with you. The glove, number one overall to start off the 1990 NBA draft. All right. So we're good with Peyton. Next one 
Uh, I'm going with Derek Coleman. I went with Derek Coleman as number two. Coleman averaged 16 points a game and um, shot 40, uh, 45% from the field. He gave. Uh, he was there for 15 years in the league coming out of Syracuse. Um, so I have him as number two. Derek Coleman, of course, when he played for New Jersey, and the Nets' policy was you got to wear a tie when you go on the plane. Derek Coleman gave a blank check and said, just fill out the end of the year. I'm not wearing a tie. <laughs> so there you go. Hey, big orange DC all day. Detroit stand up number two, Derek Coleman, without Derek a doubt. Derek Coleman. Yeah. Right. Let me ask you this. We have a number two in this draft. Was Derek Coleman fairly rated, overrated, or underrated? I think we expected more. Definitely coming out of Syracuse. Mm-hmm. You know, low post game. He had a perimeter game. He could go out to about 20 feet, sink the jumper. We thought that would continue to develop his range, would extend out in the NBA. He didn't take care of his body. He just didn't take, put in the work. That's the way I look at his career. A bundle of talent. Absolutely talented in many facets. Wasn't great on the defensive end. Wasn't a rim protector. But definitely could have been much better at the NBA level than uh, most uh, saw him doing. So he's me. Nah, I wouldn't say that. (laughs) So he's me. Your drop step is a little bit better. (laughs) Your drop step is damaging. So Peyton, uh, Derek Coleman... We also go to number three here, the 1990 redraft. So you know what I did for number three? I mean, look at the numbers. How could I pass on Tony Kukoc? Uh, <laughs> How could I pass on I'm Tony? I'm right there with you, Hood. Oh, so you, we, you I pick. have Tony at number three overall in this draft. I'm lock and step with you. I wonder in the, in the in the for real draft, like before, you know, he was looked at, you know, from by the Bulls and Kraus, whether anyone else was looking at him to be in, in the first round. I mean, that's definitely one of Krause's crowning achievements as a general manager. Being able to snatch Tony Kukoc at 29th in this draft. Yeah. Yeah. And became a solid pro. Absolutely. Became a solid pro. Um, He ends up 11.6 points a game, but that's because it was after his Bulls run, he kind of tapered off. But he gave you a good 13 years in the league as we redraft 1990. So we're lock and step with Peyton, Derek Coleman, and Kukoc. All right, four, I took Kendall Gill. Mm, okay. Kendall Gill, 15 years in the league, 13.4 points a game. Maybe because we're friends with Kendall. Maybe because we've seen some of these um, rebroadcasts of Kendall getting it against Michael <laughs> coming out of Illinois. But I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go Kendall at four here. This is where we part ways. The way the game is played today, I just couldn't pass on my move, Abdul Rauf. I couldn't. Ooh. Him in pick and roll right about now, knowing what I know. The range and seeing what he's still doing at almost close to 40, 40 plus in the big three, I definitely would have to take, a.k.a. Chris Jackson, Mamou Abdul Rauf. Mm, 35% three point shooter. Nine years in the league. Yeah. I have him on the list. He just didn't make my top five. Yeah, because of the way the game is today. Yeah. I would, oh, he would be fantastic. At five in my redraft for 1990, I went with 3D. Dennis Scott, huh? Yes, I have Dennis Scott here. And remember when we talked about the the, uh, Last Dance documentary and we were going through the Orlando Magic lineup. Man, that was... I I don't know if you... Do you get that today? Do you have the smallest player in your lineup to 6'6", Nick Anderson? Because we're talking about Nick, Penny, Shaq, um, and 3D in that lineup, right? Right. Um, 
and so those all those guys were were tall. Yeah, they were. And big guys. Yeah. So uh, and Horace Grant, of course, because Horace was six nine, six ten. Yeah. So I mean, that was a really big lineup they had there. So I'm, and and three D was a specialist at the three ball. So I have him five. Man, three D was coming off that. I don't know if you remember that year, GT versus UNLV, in the tournament. Yeah. That was a bunch of talent, man. Great game. Kendall Gill, for number five in me. That's fair. Yeah. That's fair. Yeah. Six, I took Mahmoud Abdurraouf right there because. Chris Jackson was a, a really talented player at LSU. He comes to Denver and he just kind of matched that style. You know, before all this controversy of like the flag and all this stuff, I mean, he was almost one of the pioneers of that. Whereas he was, he's a Muslim, turns Muslim, and there was this, all this controversy on why he wasn't out um, out with the rest of the team during the standing, the national anthem. Then he stood there and prayed in his hands, and people thought that was controversial. It wasn't to the point where people were like, so angry with Mahmoud that they didn't want him in the league, but there was questions about that because that was the first time that we ever seen that. Uh, right at six, I go with Cedric Sabalos. Cedric Sabalos, man, ten straight, no, nine straight years in double figures, three straight years over twenty points in Phoenix. Definitely outperformed where he was picked in the second round. I'm going to go ahead and slide Cedric Sabalos up to the sixth spot. Haven't heard you mention uh, uh, <laughs> Anthony Bonner yet. Maybe that's going to come soon. <laughs> no, he won't uh, Cedric Sabalos is seven on my list. Um, yeah, he was a, a terrific player. I liked Cedric Sabalos a lot, especially with the Suns. Yeah, I totally agree. Seven for me is Dennis Scott. Okay, so yeah, we're Dennis right Scott come three D comes in right as number seven for me. We're right there together. Eight, I put is Terry Mills. Hmm. <laughs> What's wrong with Terry Mills? What no, because I have a debate with Terry Mills. What's wrong? And, no, he he he's not eight for me, but he's he's in a debate to slide into the top ten. We'll talk about it. But you have Terry Mills at eight. Yeah. What okay. About the, the Terry Mills. There's nothing the, wrong with the, Terry the, Mills. Three point shooter. No. How would Terry Mills work today at six ten shooting shooting from the outside? He'd probably be pretty good. He had a nice little turnaround jump off the box as well. <laughs> Detroit Yes, he was. Yes, he was. Yeah. Yes, he did. Yeah. Uh, D. Brown for me at nine. At nine, I had Antonio Davis at eight for me. Yep. And then at nine, I'm gonna go with uh, Eldon Campbell. <laughs> I'm gonna slide Eldon Campbell from Clemson in there. Very serviceable his, career. I love his music, round and round. <laughs> I love that. That was that was good stuff. No, that's Tevin. It. Oh, I beg your that's pardon. Tevin. That is, that You're Tevin. trying to make this the complete Detroit draft by throwing <laughs> Tevin in there. Huh? <laughs> I beg your pardon. That was uh, Tevin Campbell. All right. Well, I, I got that wrong. Uh, at number 10, uh, Antonio Davis. 10 right here. I had a trio. It was either D. Brown, Lloyd Vaught, or Terry Mills. And just because of the Reebok pumps, I'm going to go with D. Brown. Interesting you took Eldon Campbell, who was drafted last in that draft in the first round. Yeah. All right. Eldon All right. Campbell was solid for me. He was. He yeah, lasted was. a long time. Yeah. So no Dwayne Shensis, huh? No. No? Okay. No. All right. Well, I, I bet you Andre Snelling's has something But on I'm him. very interested when we get Andre on because we this is like right after the tragic death of Hank Gathers. I'm yep. very interested where Hank Gathers probably would have gone in this draft. Man, yeah. You that's... know, because Bo Kimball ended up going what? It, was it uh, three overall? He... No. Uh, he was a. Let me look at this. He here. went eighth overall to the Clippers. Yes, he went eighth, he went overall, eighth overall to, the overall to yes. the Clippers. 
No love for Bardo either. Huh? Steve Bardo also in this draft. Man, I was so sad that him and Marcus Liberty slipped as far as they did in this draft. <laughs> yes, he was. I was so disappointed. Ask Bardo sometime about his draft night. It's always funny. Okay, <laughs> he, I will. I will. He, he doesn't remember. <laughs> um, where is Andre Stelling? He's right here. Let's talk, let's talk to Andre Stelling. We have to have bring our referee in to, for him to lap at our draft picks here for 1990. Andre Stelling, you can find him at as well as ESPN is our, our analytics guy. Dre, as always, I appreciate it. Yep, thanks for having me on. This is a fun one. Um, you know, GP was the easy first choice, right? I mean, he's the, the, the inner circle Hall of Famer out of his crew. But um, after that, there was some interesting stuff. I agreed with y'all. I think I probably would have had uh, uh, D.C. Derek Coleman number two. Mm-hmm. He's one of those all-time, you know, was he as good as he could have been and how good could he have been, you know, if, if maybe he cared about it a little more. But, um, but yeah, I was really interested in a lot of the guys and how they would translate to today, right? You know, um, my man mentioned Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf. I mean, would he look like Steph Curry, you know, if, if he played in today's game with the emphasis on the three-point shot? Wow. Maybe somewhere on the continuum between Steph Curry and uh, Trey Young, you know, somewhere mm-hmm. so, somewhere out there. Because I don't know if y'all remember Chris Jackson in college, that joker would pull the trigger. Yes, they, he would. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, did he, did he put up, like, 60, you know, in the game? So, so I, I would love to see him in today's game. And really the same with Cool Coach. Like, he, he had a game that he would be, you know – a, a, a great stretch for that can handle the rock these days. So, um, so, so I like hearing him go go pretty high. Anybody I, else I, that we that we miss? Like uh, I said, Terry Mills could work today because he he shot the ball well from the outside. Also, Dre. Yeah, that's true. That's true. There were some shooters, and you figured the shooters would be better today than they were then. I'm not sure though. I mean, because he would pretty much have to play center, right? Like. Could, could, you know what I'm saying? Like, was 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 he versatile and, and mobile enough to to be able to, to to be a shooter and then you know kind of con- contribute on the inside? Um, maybe I, I would have had him as a borderline top ten guy. Uh, he didn't make my top ten, but he was like just outside of it. Who did we miss? Did you what, did you did you make a case for uh, Bimbo Coles that we didn't know? Miguel Knight? Who did who did you who did you miss out of there? You know, I'm from Dayton, Ohio, so Miguel Knight, that, that name jumped out at me. Like, that was, you know, that, that was a man back in the day. Um, let's see, my top ten, I think you all you all had at least one of them. I had G.P. Coleman, Kendall Gill, Dennis Scott, um, uh, you know, my mood up to Chris Jackson. I just wasn't sure where to put him because of his longevity. But mm-hmm. to your point, um, if not for his the controversy about the kneeling, that maybe wouldn't have been as controversial in today's NBA. He probably would have been higher. Um, you know who snuck in, snuck in for me that I don't think either one of you mentioned um, at the back of my top ten was Tyrone Hill uh, out of Xavier. Mm, he was just correct. like a, yeah. a great role player. Um, you know, he, he could play defense. He was hard nosed, and he was one of those unsung guys that helped uh, Iverson get those sixes to the finals that nobody really remembers. That's true. That, that's true. Tyrone Hill is a solid pro. Fourteen years. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so Dre, one other question that Sean asked, and that is. The late Hank Gathers, because Loyola Marymount oh was about those threes, run and gun. What would lo- mm-hmm. what would he look like in the league? Man, Hank Gathers. You know, when he passed, that was one of those kind of traumatic, you know, experiences for me growing up. Um, like Lynn Bias died, Hank Gathers died. Like I always just felt like I could, you know, feel it. Like that was a hard one. I think he'd have been a monster in the league um, just because he had that combination of 
of, of scoring and rebounding and like skill mixed with power. And in that day and age, especially, you know, it wasn't all about uh, the, the big men have to be stretching the floor. I, I think he'd have had a heck of a pro, pro career. Greg, you're going to be writing something for theundefeated.com next week, so we're going to be reading that. Yeah, that's the plan. That's the plan. I mean, maybe a couple things. You know, I have a, a culture play piece, you know, about an actor. But, I mean, with everything that's going on in the world, um, you know, I, I may have an opportunity to kind of speak on that a little bit. And, and so I'm, I'm, I'm really hoping that, uh, that, that I find something good to say. All right, my friend. Uh, thanks for coming on, and we'll do it again soon. All right. I look forward to it. Andre Snellings from ESPN.com with us, and we thank you for listening and being part of the program here on ESPN 1000. I'll be with J.D. tomorrow between 3 and 7. Our thanks to Sean Davis on the other side of the glass. If we don't catch up on Saturday, let's do it Monday at 7 right here on Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood. This is Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood. Hi, everybody. On ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports.